how can we keep our students and ourselves safe if there is an active shooter on our campus? What can we do in the aftermath of a mass shooting to maintain productive discussions of polarizing issues such as gun control? In today's episode, we'll discuss these and related issues with an expert on mass shootings. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Jacqueline Schildkraut, a scholar who has published extensively on mass shootings, a co-author of Mass Shootings, Media, Myth, and Reality, as well as two forthcoming books, and is currently an assistant professor of public justice at the State University of New York at Oswego. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you, Rebecca and John. Welcome. Welcome. So our teas today are... I have English breakfast that brews in four minutes. (laughs) I'm trying the Scottish breakfast today. And I have PG tips. Could you tell us a little bit about your current and forthcoming books? Yes. So my first book is Mass Shootings, Media, Myths, and Realities. And what we really tried to tackle in that book was some of the common misperceptions about mass shootings, such that they're only committed by white males, or it's a uniquely American phenomenon, or, um, you know, there's certain specific causal factors, um, just things that are currently propagated by the media. And so we try to really address those through scholarly research and empirical um, findings that we could either uh, confirm or dispel those myths. Uh, The two forthcoming books I have I'm really excited about, uh, the one that I actually just uh, put to bed with the publisher, it's on its way to print right now, uh, is entitled Mass Shootings in America, Understanding the Debates, Causes and Responses. And uh, it's a really great reference book for uh, high school students and undergraduates. Um, That's basically like everything you need to know about mass shootings. So we have in the beginning um, some different essays contributed by experts in the field on topics like uh, guns and and um, mass shootings and terrorism and mass shootings and, as a hate crime um, and prevention strategies. That's the piece that I actually co-authored um, with Michelle Gay from Sandy Hook and Christina Anderson from Virginia Tech. Then we have an encyclopedia of events for 50 years, beginning in 1966 with the UT shooting and going all the way through 2016 with Pulse. And then there's some additional readings, um, some key pivotal documents like the Columbine Review Commission Report, the Virginia Tech Review Panel Report, um, basically everything you would need for a starting place in research um, on this topic. And then the third book is called Columbine 20 Years Later and Beyond, Lessons from Tragedy. Um, We kind of took that from my event last year. And what it's going to be is a 20-year retrospective on the Columbine shootings. Um, April 19th of 2019, I'm sorry, April 20th of 2019 will actually be the 20th anniversary. And, you know, when we think about Columbine, it's this very watershed kind of moment. If anybody gets asked about mass shootings, it's the first thing that comes to their mind. And so we really wanted to critically look at, you know, what have we learned over the last 20 years? Um, What do we still need to learn and what can we do? moving forward. Um, That was that sort of thesis was really kind of born out of this stone that's in the wall at the Columbine Memorial, which I've been to a couple of times. And it says there's this thing called the wall of healing. And it's all these different sayings that came out um, from parents and students and policymakers after the shooting. And there's this one stone, I actually have a copy of it in my office, 
a picture, not I didn't steal the actual <laughs> stone. Um, <laughs> but it says it brought the nation to its knees. And now that we've gotten back up, what have we learned? And for me, I always just kind of persevere in what I'm doing because I don't ever want the answer to be nothing. Um, and so that's what I really want to look back is what have we learned in the last 20 years and kind of where do we need to keep going from that? Because it's still happening. How did you end up in this line of research? Oh, I've always been morbidly curious about, um, I think, death and, and dying and just sort of these extreme acts of violence. I mean, like in the eighth grade, my social studies fair project was on presidential assassinations. So I'm not really sure kind of where this started all started. Early. <laughs> yeah, apparently. I think this is my mother's doing, so I'm going to blame her. Um, but no, interestingly, in 2007, I had, t- had kind of like left school before I finished. I was really young and had no idea what I really wanted to do. And it was the first time I was out on my own. So I think I did what a lot of 17 year olds do and just went crazy. And, you know, I bounced around the mall for a few years and ended up landing in real estate, um, which I loved and hated all at the same time. And then Virginia Tech happened. And one of my good friends from high school and I, we'd been very fortunate in that um, the high school we went to had a very large endowment. We all got scholarships off the interest and everything. And so we decided we really wanted to give back to the Hokie Memorial Scholarship Fund. So um, we threw a giant charity party at like the largest club in Orlando, booked a top 25 in the world DJ, promoted the heck out of this thing. And it busted. It literally, I went $10,000 in debt. And I was hysterical crying the next morning because I'm like, I've never failed at anything in my life that I actually tried to do. And so I went back the next day to um, the dean of the College of Business at the University of Central Florida. And I was like, please let me back into school. I have no idea what I'm doing. And that sort of led me on my path to, to where I am today. Bitch, weren't, you weren't expecting that one. No. Was, no <laughs> actually, you know. It's always interesting to find out how people end up in their discipline. There's a strong as we go connection to the University of Central Florida. Really? Chuck Jezubian, the head of, or the former head of the teaching center is an as we go graduate. And he's kept in touch with people here. And he's done some workshops up here in the past for administrators and so on. So, uh, And they're a real leader in hybrid education. Yes, I learned very, very well. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, I teach uh, our 200 person intro to criminal justice class here. And these kids are like, oh, my God, 200 kids. Like, what are we doing? And I'm like, you really don't know pain until you've taken a general business class with 750 people and no one has a clue who you are. Um, And so, you know, I mean, I'm proud to be a UCF alum and uh, for two degrees, two of my three degrees. And it'll always hold a special place in my heart, but it is very difficult to learn in an environment where you have 66,000 students. So hybrid is definitely the way to go. Can you talk a little bit about some of the myths that you refer to in in the book? I think that there's, you know, a lot of us as teachers, right? Like when there's incidents and things that happen in the world, you know, that comes up in our classes, maybe informally. And, you know, it might be helpful to have an idea of what some of the myths are and maybe how um, your audiences have responded to the research you've done on them. Absolutely. Um, You know, I think one of the most common myths that we've got, and this is, I think, probably the most Uh, the myth that we've covered that's gotten the most traction actually in the press is the idea that it's a uniquely American phenomenon. And the thing is this, we have a very different gun culture in this country that makes it very accessible. Um, And this isn't to go, you know, pro-gun or anti-gun. There's right and wrong on both sides. But we have a very unique and distinct gun culture. Um, We also have a very unique and distinct culture of violence in this country. And so It's almost even when you're comparing crime rates, it's comparing apples to oranges because you're still not comparing everything, all, you know, all things being equal, Um, because even one even though one person in Taiwan equals one person here in America, our cultures are so different, you can't standardize them. So I think that, you know, trying to say that it's only happening in America is a fallacy. It has happened in 
countries across the world. It's happened on six of the seven continents, you know, but where it gets really interesting is how we label them. Here, it's very easy to call a mass shooting a mass shooting. It's a spade is spade. If we look at something like like Africa, then it's usually called like genocide. If we're looking at something like uh, Europe or or Asia, then it's more like terrorism. Um, and that's actually an interesting thing, too, because now what we're seeing is if we look at things like Pulse or we look at things like San Bernardino, now we're seeing a, um, a sort of blending of terrorism and mass shootings. So while they are happening at a greater frequency in the United States, they're not necessarily happening at a greater rate in the United States. And so that's, I think, one thing, you know, people see coverage of something like Pulse or recently Las Vegas, and they're like, 49, 58 people killed, like this is only happening in America. And it's not, it's just how we define it. And I think the other, uh, you know, probably one of the other myths that really gets, you know, about rap is that it's like only white males. And we know that that's not true. Um, There's been much smaller frequency of female shooters. Uh, I think there's been 10 solo female offenders and then two husband-wife teams, but it's very dispersed more so among the males than the women, um, very dispersed in terms of their race or ethnicity. And I think the last one that I would pick is, is guns. People constantly think that these are being carried out with like fully automatic rifles. And of course, they call them assault rifles. And so everybody, I actually just saw a thing today in my Google alerts that said um, there was like thousands and thousands of pages related to Sandy Hook that was released today. And they still are talking about like an AR-15 type weapon, but AR actually stands for Armalite rifle and it's not assault rifle, which is a common misperception. So it immediately gives this connotation like we have to ban all assault rifles. But in reality, mass shootings are committed more often by handguns, not tremendously more often, but they're more often committed by handguns than assault rifles. I mean, air quoting here. How do you dispel the myths that maybe students bring to them to your classes and things, you know, like they have a particular mental model. We need to kind of meet them where they're at and and work from there. What are your strategies for doing that? You know, I think having an open and honest dialogue about, you know, what their perceptions are and, you know, sort of grounding them in like, okay, well, that's good. But here's what the research says. And how do you interpret that? And kind of holding them accountable in that sense to say, if I present you with counterbalancing evidence, are you still going to hold on to this misconception? It's interesting because I teach a homicide class. And one of the things I was told when I wrote a book is assign this in your class. And I'm like, okay, you know, far be it for me. But it's interesting to see because what I do do with them when they read their when they read my book is I have them do a reader blog online. So I do a little bit more hybrid because I don't want them to feel like they have to answer a certain way with me because I wrote the book. So I kind of step back out of it and let them talk amongst themselves online and reading their blogs, you know, about how they what they took away and what they really understood and how it puts it into context for them, um, you know, is I think a really good way to do it. Not that I'm suggesting that everybody on campus buys my book, but they did. (laughs) But you wouldn't object. I would not object. No, especially the new ones, because I'm actually donating all of the royalties. So I'm not making any money off of them. What role does the media and social media play in perpetuating these myths? The media is a powerhouse in um, in perpetuating these myths. And, you know, I think the media do get a bad rap in this situation. And part of it is earned and part of it is not earned, you know, because it's sort of a double edged sword. Right here in the United States, the majority of people in this country are never going to experience a mass shooting. And so subsequently, the media then becomes sort of this conduit of information. And so you've got this, 
this sort of demand on the media to pump out information as quickly as possible, which then means that traditional um, practices they had in place, like gatekeeping, sort of goes out the window. Um, I can remember back in 2000, I think it was 14, it might have been 2013, there was a shooting at a mall in Columbia, Maryland. And I'm literally watching this press conference with a, with the police chief. And he says, you know, it's two hours after the shooting finished. And he's like, you know, we're clearing the mall. You know, this is what we're doing. You know, this is the steps. We need to clear the mall. We need to locate everybody who may be injured, get them the help they need and so forth. And so one of the reporters said, well, is this domestic violence related? He goes, I, it's been two hours. I don't know the motive. And so the very next word out of the reporter's mouth was, this is a domestic violence thing. And so it's very difficult <laughs> to kind of reel that back in. Um, we saw that with Sandy Hook. They immediately said it was the brother because of the license. And for five hours, everybody in America thought Ryan Lanza was the shooter. Um, you know, his Facebook picture was shared something like 10,000 times in five hours. He was getting like death threats online. And you can't really undo that. Um, so I think, you know, it, there's this thirst for information and this demand for answers and, and talk in the immediate aftermath. And then that kind of to try and balance it, the gatekeeping gets lost. And so there needs to be more of a checks and balances, sort of a, a slowdown and say, we can give you a steady stream of information as long as we know it's correct. But, you know, I think another part of the culpability of the media is letting these letting these events be forgotten. Two weeks after the Las Vegas shooting, I will not forget this. It was October 15th and I could barely find any news. And this is something where 58 people were killed, almost 500 were injured, and we're not talking about it anymore. And it's like, what is going on? Um, so I think that they have a responsibility to the victims just as much as the shooters to make sure that that doesn't happen, that they're not forgotten. You know, it's really easy, I think, especially in a classroom a setting to other the media, right, and label blame there and, you know, to talk about it like they're separate from us. But the reality is that many of us have personal connections to a lot of these situations. So how do you handle sort of that balance in classroom discussions around these like really sensitive topics? You know, I think respect is a really big thing. I've actually had some really interesting, um, you know, like six degrees of separation kind of things happen. When I taught my homicide class, one of my students who actually graduated in the spring, her cousin was Richard Castaldo. Oh, he still is. Her cousin is Richard Castaldo, who was um, one of the students at Columbine who was shot and paralyzed. And so I found myself being very careful in what I said, where I might have been more free, you know, always checking in with her like, hey, is it okay to talk about this? And I think we all have connections. For me, I have sort of these two different connections. Um, one is Orlando, because that's where I grew up and I lived there for 13 or 14 years, I consider it my home. And so where I may have been able to compartmentalize before Pulse happened, I definitely can't now. Um, and so for me, I've noticed kind of having to find a new normal. I, as some of the survivors I work with said, I got welcomed and initiated into the club that nobody wants to be part of. Um, so that's been really helpful for me to have them to bounce ideas with. But then I also had a friend who was at the concert in Las Vegas, and I've known this girl since I was in like third grade. And so I literally at one point, I think I had an irrational thought of why are these shooters, you know, targeting my friends? Um, and it's not a rational thought, but you're like, why does it keep happening? And there's right. always these connections. So for me, I think, you know, I go in there and I'm really honest with my students. And I, we were actually supposed to talk about mass shootings the Monday night after Las Vegas. And I said, we're not going to do this. I can't do it for my own sanity. And I think that there's a much more important discussion we can have than me giving you facts and figures. And so the talk that I'm actually giving on Tuesday or next Tuesday, I gave to them. And I said, 
I want you to take ownership in your safety and I want you to know what to do if you ever find yourself in this situation. And so that's what we did that night. What would you recommend to students if there is such a situation? You know, I think one of the things that we can all do for our own personal safety, and it's not solely related to mass shootings, it's situational awareness. Um, I teach over in Lanigan 101. I've got a giant room with seven doors that all open outwards and everything's bolted to the floor. So if anything happened to that room, whether it was a suicide or a homicide or anything... I'm a sitting duck. I can't do anything. We can't barricade doors. We have nothing to barricade with. We have nothing to pick up and throw. I mean, because you have backpacks. Um, so I think just making an, making a strategy, right? When you go into a room, it doesn't have to be this long drawn out process. Just do uh, what we call quick scan, set a plan. Just look around you, know where your exits are, know what your game plan is, and just move about your day. But I think it's always good to know your own safety. I mean, we were taught from a very young age, like when you walk to a, your car at night, you walk in the light. Or when you're parking your car at night, you park under the light because people don't vi- people don't usually uh, victimize people in light. They do it in the dark. And so you take those precautions. I think we can use the same situational awareness when it comes to violent crime. We just have to be willing to think about it, which is hard to do because most people want to kind of sweep it under the rug and be like, no, this isn't going to happen. But I live this every day. Now, to balance that just a little bit, the overall homicide rate has been declining for decades, yet there's a general public perception that it's increased fairly dramatically. That's not the public perception. And how do we help students realize that? You know, one of the things that I found, I've always found really interesting is when you look at the news coverage of these events, there is a very gaping hole. And that is, what is your statistical likelihood of becoming one of those 58 or one of those 49? And it's really, really low. We've done some analysis on it. Um, I think it's less than one in seven ten thousandths to be involved in a mass shooting. Um, so it's really, really, really low. But we don't get told that. In fact, in my dissertation, which I actually looked at the media representation of mass shootings in a post-Columbine era, one of the things that I coded for was, because I analyzed like 564 news articles, and I coded for statistics and specifically national statistics, like what is the crime rate? What's your likelihood? you know, give me some context. And out of 1,930 numbers that I coded in that data, three were national context over 12 years of shootings. And nothing had anything to do with your statistical likelihood of becoming a victim. So I think if we could change the narrative to just at least offer context, not that we shouldn't feel bad about it, not that we shouldn't have a visceral reaction, but just that we have to keep it in perspective compared to homicide in general or all of violent crime or all of crime in America, when you look at it in the bigger picture, we're talking about like 0.1% of 0.1% of all crimes, but you don't get that information. And I think if context was offered, it might make people feel like they could deal with something more manageable. This leads me to think a little bit more about news representations of all sorts of things, right? If you were to help students maybe double check the news that they're looking at, like what kinds of questions would you suggest students ask of the things that they're looking at in the news, either what they're reading or seeing so that they kind of know what's valid, what's missing? That's a great question. I think one thing that is always important and we should all be doing it is questioning your source. Every everybody's got an agenda, right? And at the end of the day, I understand it as much as the next person that this is a business. And the more viewers they get or the more readers they get, the more money they generate through advertising because people want to go where the people are. And so I understand that. So for me, like what I, one thing I personally do is if I see it, let's say on Fox News, then I'll go check, check CNN. If I see it on CNN, I'll go check Fox and I'll probably throw MSNBC in the mix just to be safe. But sort of this cross-reference based on different, different biases that we know to be present in the media. Um, 
Um, you know, there's certainly conservative stations. There are certainly liberal stations. There are some moderate stations. Cross-referencing, the New York Times is a national standard for research for print, but they're not flawless. We know that the New York Times takes a liberal skew. So what can we do to balance that out? So I think just really questioning your sources and really asking yourself, what do they stand to get out of it if they report it in this manner? And try and... and it's hard to do, but it's almost like peeling back an onion, right? You have to peel off all the sensationalism and just kind of focus in on the facts and then make your own opinions and draw your own conclusions. And that's something I do try to work with my students on. Now, you mentioned you teach a class in homicide. What other classes do you teach? Right now, this semester, I'm teaching our senior seminar, which uh, we just redid, so I really like it. And this semester, I'm teaching my new class in the death penalty. So it's like I teach homicide in the morning and the death penalty in the afternoon. <laughs> Maintaining that. Yeah. So I'm like <laughs> some good continuity there. It is. Actually, I, I, it's funny because I have students in both classes and I say, listen, guys, in the morning, we'll talk about how people get killed. And then in the afternoon, I'll tell you what happens if you kill people. So that part's really interesting. I teach a breadth of courses. I teach our intro to criminal justice, um, which is university wide and one of my favorite classes because you do get such, such different viewpoints in there. I teach crim theory. I'm going to be teaching hopefully soon our new research methods core that we're really excited about. And we just went to a conference last week and there was this really amazing presentation on catastrophic criminology that really kind of focuses in or kind of parallels what I already do. And so I'm I'm hoping to develop a class in that as well. I just got a notification on my watch about six people being dead and 15 hurt after a vehicle drives into a bike path near the World Trade Center. So these things do happen. It's not just guns. No, and, and that's, you know, it's an interesting thing that you mentioned that because, you know, we typically hear in the aftermath of a mass shooting that if we get rid of all of the guns, then this won't happen. And we know that that's not true because we can look at something like what just happened in Charlottesville, right, where people are driving cars into people and they do it, of course, overseas. But it's kind of like Ian Malcolm and Chaos Theory in Jurassic Park, like life will find a way. Because if you look at the day that Sandy Hook happened in China, there was a guy who walked into an elementary school in China and knifed 22 kids. Now, none of them fortunately died because a lot of their wounds weren't as serious. But Given the motivation, people will find a way to do it. Someone still knifed a whole bunch of kids. Exactly. Someone <laughs> knifed a whole bunch of kids. Yeah, it was not the best day for them. But yeah. look at it like this, right? We we know that criminals all across this country have guns, yet we have laws that prohibit criminals from having guns. So if they're if people are determined to do something, they're going to figure out a way to do it. I feel like I just depressed everybody with that one. Yeah. All of a sudden, downer. we got really quiet. Um, yeah. I, I do have another question. Uh, I know that you've brought in guest speakers into your class. Can you talk a little bit about how you've used guest speakers to talk about some of these issues? Absolutely. I've been very fortunate to be accepted, for lack of a better word, um, into a group of survivors who are trying to use their experiences for for really positive change. Uh, the first person that I had out here was Michelle Gay. That was back in 2015. Michelle's daughter, Josephine, was killed at Sandy Hook. And Michelle and Alyssa Parker, whose daughter Emily was killed, they formed Safe and Sound, a Sandy Hook initiative. And they're really focused on smart, common sense preventative measures um, to help keep schools safer. And it's interesting because I actually learned about their organization watching the Anderson Cooper one-year anniversary special on Sandy Hook. And I looked up their organization and because I have like no shame or filter, 
I literally sent her an email and said, hi, can we link up? And this is what I do. And I've been working with her for about a little over three years now as one of her research analysts, which I absolutely love because I do so strongly believe in their mission. And through that, I've met a a number of other people. Um, This past spring, we had Frank DeAngelis out. Um, He was the principal of Columbine on the day that it happened. And he came and did a presentation with Christina Anderson, who was the most critically injured surviving student at Virginia Tech. And so they were sort of able to give two different perspectives of these events. And then this coming spring, we have John Michael Keyes coming out. John Michael, his daughter, Emily, was uh, the student that was killed at Platte Canyon High School back in 2006 um, in the hostage standoff. And he developed the SRP, the Standard Response Protocol, which is a fantastic program. All of the resources are free. I don't know why more schools are not using this. And so he's going to come out and do a presentation as well on, um, on the SRP and sort of his experiences that led him there. So I think Having resources at my disposal that a lot of other people don't have, I just try to maximize what I can do to help people learn from them and help to spread the message that they share because I do believe so strongly in them. One of the things you've mentioned is that you, in earlier discussions, is that you, you're an advocate for the no notoriety movement. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. The No Notoriety movement was started by Tom and Karen Teeves after their son Alex was killed at the Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooting back in 2012. And, you know, Tom and Karen, I've had the opportunity to speak with them and and talk about strength and just fantastic individuals who, again, are really turning a negative experience into something positive in the hopes that their experience and their loss can help prevent other people's loss. And there's been some preliminary research that suggests um, that there's a contagion effect to mass shootings, such that every time a shooting happens, it increases the likelihood that there'll be copycat events in in a specific period. It's usually about two weeks. And so Tom and Karen's um, No Notoriety campaign, which people can look up online, it's nonotoriety.com. Their campaign is basically about limiting the exposure of the shooter and instead focusing on the victims. Um, And it's really common sense stuff that the media could be doing. Like it's okay to name the shooter and give this sort of base information, but to continue to just loop their picture or repeat their name every two seconds, it's not healthy. And it's taking the focus off of the people who need help, who need closure, who need resources, and instead just sensationalizing something that's already so sensational to begin with. So the No Notoriety campaign, like I said, really just focuses on limiting the exposure of the shooter. And so I really try hard when I talk to the media, which I had to do a lot after Las Vegas, is just to really say, look, can you please just not name the shooter? Like, we get it. We know what he did. We know who he is. It's just no, there's not a need to talk about them anymore. And you've been doing something separate from that or something on the opposite end on your own social media feeds. So as I mentioned, um, about two Two weeks after the Las Vegas shooting, I started to realize that nobody was talking about it anymore. And it infuriated me because it took us nine years to get from Virginia Tech, which used to be the deadliest mass shooting in the United States, to Pulse. It took 16 months to get from Pulse to almost to the day, 16 months to get from Pulse to Las Vegas. And you know, we're not talking about people that went into a nightclub or went into a school or showed up at their workplace. We're talking about somebody who took a trajectory that we haven't seen since 1966 in the UT shooting, who converted his weapons to automatic and who rained fire essentially down on a city. And so the fact that after two weeks, everyone was like, eh, it's another mass shooting. 
like, I can't use language on your show that would allow me to adequately explain how I felt about that. Um, <laughs> so for me, what I really wanted to do is focus on the victims. And, you know, we were, a lot of the coverage that I did, you know, when I talked to the press really focused on the guns or their perpetrator or sort of the occurrence of mass shootings, but I never got asked about the victims. And I started to realize that this isn't just a number. And I've known, I've known that for a while, that it's not just the 13 at Columbine, the 26 at Sandy Hook, the 32 at Virginia Tech, the 49 at Pulse, or the 58 at Las Vegas. These are individuals who are humans and who had stories to tell. And so what I started doing on, I believe it was August 15th or October 15th, is every day I go on my social media and I post a picture collage of one of the victims. And then I do separate research. And these are pictures that usually are on their own personal Facebook pages. So not the ones the media have circulated. And then I will go on their social media pages and I'll read a bunch of different articles about them and I'll write bios. And so that way, every day for 58 days, we're still talking about them. And it's been probably one of the hardest yet most rewarding things I've ever done because I've learned so much about these individuals and what a tremendous loss to their society beyond just being one of 58. There's there's mothers and, and husbands and children and recent college graduates who have their whole life ahead of them and couples who died together and a husband who basically held his wife as she passed away Who and he had survived wars. And, you know, just reading these stories and really humanizing them, I think is so important because we, as a society, we don't do that. So yeah, that's what I've been doing. I think as an artist, it's kind of an interesting, interesting project or an interesting endeavor that you're on. And it demonstrates that there's places for kind of every discipline to tap into these kinds of issues, you know, to reframe them a little bit. Yeah. And to share things out and to storytell and to kind of use their expertise to help get words out, right, about particular people and to, to place value on people in their stories. And I think that's so important. You know, like I said, I've learned so much. And what really struck me is I think it was Saturday. I sat down and I was like, wow, I've only been doing this for two weeks. I mean, I've already been doing this for two weeks. And I actually, I think you might've seen my post, John. I said, I've done 14 profiles. I have 44 to go. Like, let that sink in that I'm not even a quarter of the way there. And in two weeks, I'll do the same thing. Like, hey, I've done four weeks of this and I'm not even halfway there. And I think it just, it's, It really puts into perspective the gravity of the loss. But I think it also speaks to your question a little bit earlier about the role of the media and the power of social media, because we um, some research that we had previously done really looked at where people's perceptions of mass shootings or school shootings um, had come from. And one of the studies that we did found that social media and Twitter in particular were driving perceptions. So the more you're on Twitter, the more you're likely to think this is a social problem, probably because of the format of Twitter. It's like headline, 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 Mm -hmm. headline. But what I've been really noticing in this endeavor that I've been doing is the power of getting this information out. I have people who are copying it over onto Twitter or onto Instagram. I have um, every post is getting like at least 10 shares. It's getting a lot of likes. I've been using like similar hashtags. So it, it's hashtag we need to talk about mass shootings. Hashtag the time is now. Hashtag remember the victims. Hashtag remember their names and hashtag Las Vegas. And I put that on every single one so that that way, if anybody ever just clicks on it, they'll see this whole, whole stream. Time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's really a powerful tool. It is. Thank you for following along, by the way. <laughs> now, there's a lot of research that shows that when students are learning, if there is an emotional connection to the material, they learn more deeply. And actually, negative emotions can have a stronger impact on long-term recall. Are you finding that when you're dealing with such emotional topics? It's interesting to me. I don't know that anybody will ever, any of my students will ever remember facts or figures. 
you know, and it's it's also really interesting because the more I think about it, no matter how old I get, my students are always 18. It's crazy, especially in <laughs> intro. Like I keep aging and every year they're all 18. So within a year, these kids will have been born after Columbine had happened. And so I see a responsibility in keeping the discussion going, but not I'm not as concerned about facts and figures. Like they can Google or Wikipedia that. But might it help them remember the concepts that you're trying to do by tying it to things that have a stronger emotional impact. Oh, for sure. You know, I think we're all passionate about this in our own way. I think I have a different level of passion about it because I work with survivors, because my hometown was hit, um, you know, and so I think that that's, that comes across really genuine with them. And it makes it so that they want to have that same compassion that I do. And so we've had, my students and I have had some very, very thoughtful, serious discussions about this. And, you know, about what it means, about what it means in our culture, about what we can do, um, you know, to change this. And I, I, I hate to have to be the one that tell to tell them this is going to keep happening. Um, and so I have to tell them that because it's true, because I don't ever want to be the person that lies to my students. Um, but I say, let's not let these people die in vain. Let's learn from them. And so what can we take away? Um, I have a student right now who took my theory class last spring, and we're actually writing a policy piece um, about how we can use the theoretical principles that he learned to make actual policy decisions based on these events. So there's a practical application with the course material as well. But I think just, you know, I'm open with them and I'll say, listen, when I, when, at, when Las Vegas happened, I said, I'm not going to lecture about this. I can't because it triggered stuff in me after Pulse. Um, but I'll answer any questions that you have and they'll ask. And I think that having me as a resource because of what I do helps them. I'm really loving what you're talking about because I'm hearing so many things that came up in a lot of our reading groups um, about small teaching. You know, I'm hearing, you know, questions driving the learning. I'm hearing you as a faculty member being vulnerable and kind of being really present, right? I'm and hearing having a storytelling. For the subject yeah. and interest and all those things are I'm hearing really storytelling and using narrative to kind of drive a class forward to get people really interested and engaged. Um, so I think that there's a lot to learn, even if we're not necessarily teaching the same subject matter about sort of the way that you're framing some of these discussions and the way that you're approaching things. Absolutely. And you know, what's really interesting to me is I'll have students, I keep, I have very good relationships with most of my students. And so I, a lot of them, once they graduate, come back, uh, just had my first group graduate and it was like very emotional. Um, I cried a lot. Um, <laughs> if they're listening, they're very missed. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, people will constantly reach back out to me and be like, I think about these things very differently because of you. And I look at them very differently and I listen very critically when I'm, you know, watching the news and I'm thinking about these events. And um, it's always funny to me because when my student, my students are so interested in the topic, but none of them will ever write their papers on it. They're like, you're going to totally know if we're wrong. And I'm like, then just do good research. But yeah, no, they won't tackle it. They're terrified. Um, but yeah, I think just being open and honest with them. And like you said, being vulnerable, I think it makes us more human to them as teachers and it helps to build that relationship. It I want to just for, yeah, I a more say. comfortable environment in the classroom when they feel that you're human and not just someone in a separate reality. I just wanted to underscore something that you had said. Um, you said kind of listen critically. I think we talk a lot about critical thinking and critical reading, but we don't talk a lot about critical listening. 
or even just listening. <laughs> so um, I think it's just like I just caught that as you were talking and I just like latched onto it <laughs> because I think it's something that we don't talk about often enough. And so I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think in, in our society, especially when we're relying so much on the media, we have to be critical listeners, right? Because like I tell my students, challenge everything that you're told. Like, yes, I have a PhD and I stand in front of you and they pay me to teach you, but you should still question what I'm telling you. Like, go do your own research question. So if you hear something that doesn't sound right or makes you go, hmm, I don't really know if I agree with that. That's okay. That's good. It's good to kind of challenge the system and challenge your thinking and and go back and seek out answers on your own. And maybe they'll confirm what that person said and maybe they'll turn it on its head. I think some of the other things that you talked about, too, in terms of listening is like listening to voices that are being suppressed in some ways. Right. So like the victim's voices and making sure that you're taking the time to listen. Right. And and to think through some of those perspectives that we might generally overlook. So kind of building that empathy seems really important, too. Well, it's really interesting. So one of the projects that I actually literally just started, in fact, I have a part of it tonight at seven. Um, one of the things that's so interesting to me, there was a, a comment that was made when I did um, Minnesota Public Radio and it it was interesting because I really try and stay away from gun conversations because no one wins in those conversations. <laughs> um, but it was actually done very tastefully, so I didn't mind participating. Um, but somebody who was actually a gun owner came on and he was like, you know, you have a bunch of people who have never picked up a gun in their life trying to make gun policy. And I'm like, it's actually got a point. Um, and then I started to think about mass shooting survivors. And Specifically, I started to think about what I had read on Pulse. And the city of Orlando managed to raise a lot of money. Las Vegas is going to raise a lot of money. Uh, Sandy Hooker or Newtown raised a lot of money. And there's these victims' compensation funds that are created. But then the question becomes, how do you do, how do you dole that out? And it ends up being this really sort of static you know, math equation, like how many times were you shot? Where were your injuries? Um, how long is your care? And, you know, and everything gets like a variable coding and then you get a, it's like sentencing guidelines. You're eligible for this much money. And it doesn't, that part seems very cold to me. It feels but so imprint impersonal and I think like John and I are both like completely cringing as you're talking right like you can see it in our faces yeah <laughs> I, I have that effect yes on people no uh, I, I, I am yeah. but on the other it hand makes sense. there are forensic economists yeah. and I publish some things in forensic economic journals where they evaluate different mm -hmm. types of injuries and loss of earnings and so forth because there is a need for different levels of compensation based on the extent of the damages, but that doesn't capture all of the, the damage. But what's really important when we're talking about survivors and victims is we typically think of it in this very dichotomous way. Did you die or were you shot? And where this really kind of caught my attention was um, when Christina came here back in March and she and Frank and I were out to dinner and she was telling me a story about her classroom. And um, she was in the classroom in Virginia Tech where the shooter ended up committing suicide. Um, and all of the people in her room were shot except one person. Some of them died and some of them lived, but one person did not get touched by a bullet. And because he wasn't physically injured, he got way less resources than all of the others, whereas he saw the same things, heard the same things, experienced the same things um, in an emotional state. Yeah. And so that kind of got me thinking, we don't think about survivors 
in as much of a layering as we should, right? What about all the police officers who have to sit there and listen to cell phones ringing and ringing and ringing while people are on the other end trying to find their loved ones? What about hospital personnel? They don't train for this. I mean, they do, but they don't because there's no amount of preparation that will ever prepare you for seeing a body with 11 gunshots in it or having to carry people, you know, room by room because you have nowhere to put them because it's this huge situation. What about the counselors that are counseling people, right? Or what about the 22,000 people who were at that concert that witnessed what was going on? And so I started to really reconceptualize this idea of homicide survivor very differently. Um, And so one of the things that I'm working on right now is I'm interviewing survivors of mass shootings to ask them what their needs are, because no one ever has. I checked the literature. There's a little bit of stuff on PTSD, but no one's ever said, what did you need in the aftermath? What resources would have helped you? What did you have that worked? What did you have that didn't work? And it just, it was like a, why are we not doing this? If you want to know what survivors need, ask the survivors. Um, So that's actually a project that I'm working on right now with um, a trauma psychologist who um, he's out of uh, the Denver metropolitan area and he handles a lot of these big cases. So I'm very fortunate to be working with him. Sounds like a great project. And again, like really kind of rethinking the way that we think about things, which it's such a valuable thing to spend time on. It's interesting too. So far I've interviewed two people. Um, I have my third interview this evening. Um, The first person I interviewed was a student who was in Columbine when it happened, but was in an, an internal room and managed to lock down. And you know, she certainly has had very different experiences than uh, than other students would have had, What you know, based on where they were at in the school. Um, and the second interview I had was with one of the parents whose child was killed at Columbine. And, um, and it was interesting talking to her because, you know, not only was she talking about her own personal experiences, but how the siblings of the child, um, you know, didn't really get any resources. Everybody had focused on the parents and, and kind of forgot about the other children. And so it's really, I mean, even though I've already only done two interviews, there's so much there that I think, you know, in the long term, we're going to be able to make a really big difference um, to help reallocate resources so that everybody's getting what they need. Now, we live in a world with increasing polarization on almost every issue when you look at distributions of preferences or beliefs and so forth. And you mentioned some issues that you try to avoid, but in the classroom, some of those might come out. How do you deal with people who have very biased views, who only listen to Fox News, who only listen to MSNBC or something similar? So that's a really interesting question. And it kind of brings me back to my job interview. Um, uh, cycle. So I did five on-campus interviews. Um, and as soon as everybody found out I studied mass shootings, the number one question I was asked on the job market was, what's your stance on gun control? And I'm like, it's not irrelevant to me getting this job. <laughs> like, what does it matter? And it got me kind of thinking because I interviewed at very Southern schools. I interviewed very Northern schools. Um, I interviewed at liberal schools. I interviewed at conservative schools. And so everybody was sort of waiting for me to give them this answer. And so my sort of resp- standard response was my job as a researcher is to be able to see both sides of this argument and find a common ground. And I've always really, I think, been able to do that quite well. Um, if you actually look at 
what the gun control camp and the gun rights camp are saying. They're saying the exact same thing with one critical difference. Both of them are saying we're totally cool with background checks. Like we understand the need to keep the hands out of the guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. The difference is, is that the gun control camp wants to say the gun caused the problem and the gun rights camp is saying, or sorry. Yeah. The gun rights camp is saying, it's an inanimate object. That's not true. And so one wants to criminalize the gun and the other doesn't. And if they could just put that one difference aside and listen to each other, they might actually make some progress, um, but they don't. And so it has come up in class a number of times. Um, one of the one of the questions is, well, why don't we arm teachers or students? And I'm like, okay, let's talk about this. Um, I said, I've been in 101. I don't think I really want any of my freshmen armed. That's just me. Um, you know, some of them are probably fantastic marks persons and they can practice that out on a range somewhere away from me. <laughs> um, but it's, it's interesting. I said, let's talk about the practical side of this, right? So what I'll do is I will usually have four students come up and I always joke with them. I'm like, don't make gun hands. Cause you know, like the little kids who like chewed their chicken nuggets into the shape of guns and got expelled. I said, don't make gun hands. Cause I don't want us to all get in trouble but I'll go like put your arms out and they basically are making a square and I will have sent somebody out of the room before I do this and I have them come back in and I say do me a favor tell me who's the shooter and they'll look at me and go I have no idea I go guess who doesn't either law enforcement when they respond I said so you could actually be a good Samaritan but you're going to get shot because they think you're the shooter I said the other you know the other practical considerations I said I'm not saying that this is right or wrong I said but let's look at what can go wrong? So we know that um, citizens with concealed carry don't get as much training as law enforcement. That's not that's not a, a Republican or a, or a liberal statement. That is a fact. And so if we look back in 2012, ironically, also in New York City, there was a shooting at the Empire State Building. And police responded and they shot and killed the perpetrator and they accidentally shot nine bystanders in the middle of Manhattan. And these are people that are trained to fire their weapons in very high stress, high stakes situations. Um, again, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Things happen. I said, but these are people who get way more training than you do. So what's the practical implication of that? So forcing them to develop their critical thinking skills, exactly. focusing on empirical issues and real world problems rather than their preconceived notions is the focus. Right. And I think it's important, you know, and I do try to take, especially with this issue, because like I said, there's no way to win on this one. Um, I really do try to take a very neutral standpoint. I think when you're making these kinds of arguments, they can come across somewhat value laden in I'm for gun control. And I'll always tell them. There's plenty of people in this country I'm a-okay with being around with a gun. There's plenty of people I don't want to be near if they have a gun, um, you know. Or and, otherwise. Or other, or <laughs> knives or bombs or yes. anything. I mean, like, I just probably don't want to be near them. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure they're all fantastic people, though. Um, but But – I look at it from a very practical standpoint, like what can go wrong here? Um, you know, and if we think about like having guns on campus, what if we have a suicidal student? And, you know, um, one of the things I, I, they, I heard at Columbine, because um, there was a lot of like really good uh, presentations that were there. And 
it's not always a shooting. Um, there was uh, at Stanley Lake High School a few years ago, which is in na- a neighboring county to where Columbine is located. There was a kid named Vince Nett who was sitting in the cafeteria, really struggled with depression and some other issues, basically took a water bottle full of lighter fluid, dumped it on his head and lit himself on fire in the middle of a cafeteria. You're not only dealing with this one student, you're dealing with everybody who's seen him. So when I ask them things like that, it's not only is it what's the implication for this one particular student, what is the implication for everybody around? And the same question with, you know, not only police responding and trying to figure out who's the shooter, other good Samaritans could think that you're the shooter working with the other shooter or God forbid, you're swinging a gun around trying to take them out and you take out a bunch of citizens. So I'm just asking them to think critically before they make a decision like that. So one of the last things that we usually ask our... Before we do that, um, one of the things we want to ask is there have been so many emergency response systems put in and emergency alert systems on campuses. Have they had any positive impact? If they are used. Um, you know, one thing about systems is it's not wholly sufficient to just have a system. You have to practice it and you have to practice it regularly so that it becomes like second nature. Um, you know, I think that that's something we can all always improve upon, whether we're here at a workplace or here at school or in a, in a professional workplace setting or at the mall or wherever. Um, we should always just be taking stock and taking ownership in our own personal safety. Um, you know, there have been instances where things like Safe to Tell, um, which is an app where students can anonymously report that they know that these things are going to happen, um, has been extremely effective in averting rampages. Um People don't snap, right? They they decide, actually, is what somebody said at Columbine. They said they don't snap. They decide. And before that decision comes or when that decision comes, there's usually an element of leakage. And so you can look at almost any shooting, and there are clear warning signs. Now, of course, hindsight is 50-50. Um, but there's also been a number of instances where people took those warning signs very seriously and reported them and were able to avert rampages. So whether it's an emergency notification system, um, during a crisis, which we know didn't work the way it was supposed to do in Virginia Tech, um, it did at Sandy Hook. Um, you know, he had a very short amount of time before, you know, and everybody was doing what they were supposed to do that day that as many people that died there, more could have if they hadn't done what they did. Um, we know that there's deficiencies, but we know that one of the biggest deficiencies is really just not practicing and not utilizing your system. Um, and I always tell my students, you know, growing up in Florida, I'm really good at hurricanes. Um, like I could do a hurricane <laughs> like it's nobody's business. And I always tell them, I said, planning and preparation, they, they always think this is really funny. But I said, it's like SpaghettiOs. And they go, <laughs> whatever do you mean? And I said, when you grow up in Florida and a hurricane is going to come Everybody like rushes the store and like for water and plywood and all of the usual hurricane supplies. But when your power goes out, you have no food. So you get SpaghettiOs or as we grew up calling it crap in a can. And because you just get like a manual can opener and you can basically eat it right out of a can. You don't have to heat it up or anything. And I said, so you'll buy a bunch of cans of SpaghettiOs and then they will sit like spammer Twinkies in your pantry for years because you did it. And they'll still be good during the next hurricane. Exactly. They'll still be fine because hurricanes are inevitably natural disasters, much like in their own sort of way mass shootings are. And so they will change course or, you know, they'll jog north or they'll jog south. I mean, I lived through both Hurricane Andrew and Hurricane Charlie. Um, 
Hurricane Andrew jogged south at the last minute, and so we didn't get the eye. And then Hurricane Charlie, um, it was supposed to hit Tampa, so they evacuated everybody into Orlando, where I lived. And then it came right up through the state, through Orlando, and everyone's like, we could have stayed in Tampa. Um, But I always say, it's better to have the SpaghettiOs and not need them than need the SpaghettiOs and not have them. And that's the same with our training and our systems, right? It's better to practice them and never have to use them than to need them and have them not be there. Very good. SpaghettiOs. So the last question we always ask is, you know, what... What are you going to do next? You're already doing so much. What are you going to do next? Um, it sounds like a lot of that's already underway. Yeah. It is. Um, you know, right now my heart is really, um, really in the Survivors Project because I feel a sense of responsibility in that these individuals who don't know me from a hole in the wall and are going on the recommendation of a couple of people that I happen to know um, are really willing to open up and share their stories with me because they want to save other people. And that's a responsibility that I take extremely seriously. Um, You know, I've always said uh, that if I can save one life in what I do, it will all have been worth it. You know, the crying and the the emotional ringing out because it's not easy to do what I do. Um, But it's rewarding because, you know, I have affirmation from the survivors that I'm doing what needs to be done. And I've gotten it even just in the last couple of weeks as I've been signing people up for their interviews. They said, we don't understand why nobody's ever asked us, but we're so appreciative that you're doing it because it needs to be done. Um, so that's a responsibility I take so seriously. And so that's, I think, really where my passion is. Um, and also, like I said, this Columbine book is really kind of the other has the other half of my heart. Um, so when we sat down, I'm actually writing the book with my mentor, Glenn Mushert, who's at uh, Miami University of Ohio. And when we sat down to write the book, I said, you know, I said, it feels really wrong to make money off of this. Like, I don't want to. Um, I've never gone. I mean, we we all know this. In academics, you don't get here to be rich. Um, I hope not. I mean, I hope one day I'm rich, but it won't be from this. <laughs> um, but, you know, when we got our first royalty check on the first book, we were like, what? We thought we'd never see a royalty check. Like, we didn't really understand how it worked. And it was a couple hundred dollars. I mean, it was like, great, dinner, pair of boots. Like, awesome. Um but we started to really talk about it. And I was like, this just doesn't feel right. And so I got a hold of Frank um, and I said, listen, you know, Glenn and I have been talking and, you know, we're writing this book and it's really important for us to get back to the Littleton community. And I said, so we would like to donate the money to the Columbine Memorial Foundation to help maintain the memorial so that future generations can learn from it the way that we have. And I mean, he and, and the board president, Rick Townsend, whose daughter Lauren was killed at um, at Columbine were great about it. Um, and, you know, it, it's not going to make them rich and it's not going to build a new memorial or, you know, it might not even cover all of their expenses for a year, but it's it's giving back to a community that really deserves it. And so when that happened, um, I then made the decision on the second book. I said, no, nah, I don't really want that money either. I mean, like who gives money away? Like it's like this, but I said, it just doesn't feel right. Like I don't want to profit off of other people's loss. And so I actually reached out to um, the One Pulse Foundation, which um, was founded by Barbara Poma, who is the um, the owner was the owner of Pulse, and um, she she still owns the memorial or she owns the building, and so they want to establish a permanent memorial, and so I had all of the. Um, the royalties from the second project redirected to them. Um, so I think, you know, just really trying to write a good quality book that gets the reception that my first book did um, so that it will make as much money for these communities as I can. That's really kind of where my goal is. And then I think after that, I'm just going to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a very long three and a half years here at Oswego, but very rewarding as well. 
Well, thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was so much fun. And thank you for my my English tea breakfast or English breakfast tea that's ready in four minutes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.